Blog Talk Radio. Patient Myeloma Radio, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. We'd like you to get to know these amazing specialists and learn about their latest work so you can understand their open clinical trials. As patients, we have the power to move myeloma research forward at a faster pace if we join clinical trials in greater numbers. If you'd like to hear about our upcoming and past interviews in a weekly email, we invite you to subscribe to our M Patient Minute newsletter. Just go to the homepage of www.mpatient.org. You can find links also to our Twitter and Facebook pages there. I'm very happy to be talking today with one of the myeloma greats, Dr. Sergio Geralt, or Sergio Geralt in, in American speak, of the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. So welcome, Dr. Geralt, or I should say, bienvenido. Muchas gracias, Jennifer. <laughs> Thank you for having me on the program. Well, thank you so um, much for joining us. I, you know, I think we're all. Uh, it's been a incredible decade for myeloma research, and uh, although you know it's, you know, it's always a devastating diagnosis, but you know, there's so much more hope now than there was, uh, you know, ten or fifteen years ago, and all of this is, as you stated, it's because. The patients of 10 years ago decided to participate in clinical trials that led to the standard of care today. And if we want to make the same great strides that we've made over the last decade, the patients of today have to continue to support and encourage their physicians and their caregivers to participate in clinical trials so we can make this disease a lot easier and potentially cure a large proportion of patients. And I just you know, as we discussed, um, just start with a, the regular patient. You know, 15 years ago, most myeloma patients were actually being diagnosed with very symptomatic disease, and, you know, a large proportion of patients were actually being diagnosed with very advanced disease with hypercalcemia and, you know, you know renal failure. Unfortunately, that still happens, but what we're seeing is that more and more patients, because there are more and more people getting routine physical examinations, routine blood work being done, are actually being diagnosed serendipitously as uh, part of a routine physical. They are found with a mild anemia or a total increased total protein or maybe mild renal dysfunction, and that leads to the traditional workup that, you know, uh, besides the history and physical, it involves standard blood work and x-ray, and, um, you know, they're documented, you know, either some mild bone lesions or the paraprotein or the myeloma peak is seen in the blood or in the urine, which uh, leads to a bone marrow in which we see the um, infiltration of these clonal or malignant plasma cells. Uh, currently today, uh, cytogenetics has become standards. Fifteen years ago, that was not the case. And although we know that cytogenetic abnormalities um, can define prognosis of the disease. We know that there are some chromosome abnormalities associated with um, shorter remission durations, particularly abnormalities of chromosome 17, of chromosome 1, or complex cytogenetic abnormalities. Uh, we still, as opposed to other blood cancers, cannot say these cytogenetic abnormalities 
require this treatment. Um, initial therapy or induction treatment for myeloma has also changed dramatically. You you probably remember, you know, 10 years ago, thalidomide dexamethasone was the most commonly used uh, induction treatment. Thanks to, again, you know, large clinical trials, we do know that for patients, particularly those that are being considered for high-dose therapy and stem cell transplantation, the use of bortezomib as part of the induction therapy changes the natural course of the disease. Four randomized trials I've put together that in patients who are transplant eligible, the addition of bortezomib to the induction therapy, and bortezomib is the one that patients may recognize as the brand name Velcate, Mm-hmm. Uh, in combination with um, uh, both lenalidomide or in combinations with lenalidomide and dexamethasone or in combination with thalidomide and dexamethasone has shown a significant improvement in response rate prior to transplant that also translates into improvements in disease control after the transplant. So what's happening today in that induction space? Well, a couple of things. One of the difficult questions that we have today is deciding which patient requires treatment. And many patients with myeloma out in uh, amongst those who are hearing us may be told, well, I have asymptomatic myeloma or smoldering myeloma. And my doctor says, I don't need any treatment. Is that true? And the reality is, is of today, patients with asymptomatic or smoldering myeloma, which means those patients that although they have an increase in plasma cells in their bone marrow, they have absolutely no evidence of what we call end-organ damage. The x-rays show no bone lesions. The blood counts are totally normal with no anemia. The kidney function is totally normal. And even with, you know, total body MRIs, we can't see areas of bone destruction. And these patients with smoldering myeloma, we are now trying to decide who needs treatment. Many uh, many myeloma patients probably have heard through the blogosphere the New England Journal paper of Dr. Mateos in which patients with high-risk smoldering myeloma, and they were defined as high-risk, Jenny, because they had either very high protein levels or they had... um, a very high plasma cell infiltration of their bone marrow. These patients were given lenalidomide, or what we know as the trade name Revlimid, and they were randomized against patients who received just observation. And to everybody's surprise, the patients who get Revlimid actually lived, lenalidomide actually lived longer. Now, one of the problems with the Spanish study is that the control group never received lenalidomide. So we're still left with the question of if the patients in the control group had received lenalidomide or very good treatment for their myeloma once it progressed, would the results have been the same? But it does suggest that there may be a role for treating people earlier in the course of the disease. Most patients, however, do not have smoldering myeloma. Most patients have at least some evidence of end-organ damage, usually, you know, lytic lesions or usually anemia. And for these patients now, standard treatment in North America is a combination of bortezomib with lenalidomide dexamethasone or a combination of bortezomib with cyclophosphamide dexamethasone. 
For older patients or patients who are not considered transplant eligible, particularly those who are frail or have significant comorbidities, maybe the combination of either bortezomib dexamethasone or lenalidomide dexamethasone can achieve good disease control with significantly less side effects. What are we exploring at Memorial in regards to clinical trials? So we have, we're involved in two very large clinical trials. One is the uh, international trial of early versus late high-dose therapy and stem cell transplantation. All these patients get lenalidomide, bortezomib, dexamethasone induction for four cycles, and then they are randomized to get an early consolidation with high-dose melphalan and an autologous transplant, or to only get high-dose therapy with high-dose melphalan and an autologous transplant in the event that the disease comes back after eight cycles of bortezomib, lenalidomide, dexamethasone, and lenalidomide maintenance until progression. We think this is a very important study. It will answer the question about what is the role of transplant as consolidation therapy for all myeloma patients. It is associated with a lot of genetic testings that will allow us to to discern in the context of modern treatment with induction therapy, consolidation, and maintenance, what are the prognostic factors, particularly what are the cytogenetic and the chromosome abnormalities. We are looking at, you know, total gene assessment to see what mutations may be predictive of a worse outcome, and some of those mutations may be druggable, and we may have we may develop targeted treatments for specific subsets of myeloma. Very exciting times. Yeah, I think drugs are. Yeah. Uh huh. Yes, go on. Very no, it's very exciting, and I think that's where we'd like to see. So I guess if you could help patients understand from a testing perspective, what tests do we need to be getting? What questions do we need to be answering so that we can understand what type of treatment might be most appropriate for us? I think that's an excellent question, Jenny, and I think you also allude to the fact that an informed patient is an empowered patient, and that we recommend that patients go to blog sites such as yours, to patient advocacy sites such as the MMRF or the uh, uh, International Myeloma Foundation and the Leukemia Lymphoma Society. There's a lot of good information out on the web. There's a lot of bad information also. So I think that we should direct our patients to the websites that we know have been adequately vetted and have information that's useful and up-to-date. So going back to your question, what should a patient ask? So there usually are always five core questions that a patient should ask. One is, what do they have? And, you know, and what do they have in a patient with myeloma is they have a malignant plasma cell disorder. The next question they should ask is, how much do they have of it? And for that, they required a staging evaluation. That means, you know, bone survey or a skeletal survey where all the bones are x-rayed. We are recommending today that an MRI is done of the uh, axial skeleton, that's the lumbosacrothoracic spine, one, to determine if there's extensive infiltrative disease, and two, to determine if whether there may be root compressions. Three, we're recommending a PET CT to see if there are areas outside of the bone marrow and the bone that may be affected with myeloma, so-called extramedullary myeloma sites. In the bone marrow, we're recommending that Besides the traditional stainings that are done 
for CD138, for Kappa Lambda. Their patients get cytogenetics and fluorescent in situ hybridization. These two studies, the conventional cytogenetics and the fluorescent in situ hybridization, are very informative in regards to prognosis. And although still as of today, they do not necessarily guide treatment, we think in the future, the presence or absence of specific cytogenetic abnormalities will allow patients to participate in clinical trials targeted for specific cytogenetic abnormalities. There has already been one of those where um, uh, patients who had a 1416 abnormality were able to participate in a clinical trial that unfortunately was not positive, but we're viewing that patients with MM-SET abnormalities, FGF abnormalities, that as new drugs become available for these different mutations, these specific subset of patients may be targeted because we think that these drugs may have a particular benefit for these patient subsets. What else should a patient have? All patients should have a beta-2 microglobulin, a comprehensive chemistry looking at calcium um, and uh, creatinine. In very young patients, we are also recommending that they get HLA typing done because for very young patients, particularly those with high-risk disease, we think that a serious consideration should be given to an allogeneic or a donor transplant. What else do you think we should be telling our listeners, Jenny? Well, when it comes to the gene the gene testing, which test does that? Is it the cytogenetics or is it a gene expression profile or which test is looking at the actual cuz I've seen some studies now targeting you have one targeting specific genes. Which test is for those? So not all states have the um the uh, gene expression profiling test available. This is a test that's commercially available through uh, Signal Genetics. It's called uh, MyPRS Score. Uh, they do the gene expression profiling that was described by the group at Arkansas. Um, it's a very informative test, but it's not available to everybody throughout the United States. Mm-hmm. The standard cytogenetics and fluorescent in situ hybridization is what most patients should do. This is available across the United States. Um, in some specific protocols, for example, we have a BRAF protocol and a cabocentinib protocol. We're looking for, in the BRAF, we're looking for BRAF mutations that are seen in 10 to 15% of patients. This is primarily for patients with advanced myeloma. The same way the cabocentinib is for patients who we have overexpression of MEK. This is uh, not an inclusion criteria, but we want to um, try to uh, enrich the protocol for patients who have MEK abnormalities because this is a uh, MEK inhibitor. Um, I think the other thing that patients should start asking is, you know, what is the role of stem cell transplantation in transplant-eligible patients? And this is currently a very uh, interesting question, a very controversial one, particularly in patients who have major responses to induction therapy. Let's mm-hmm. not forget with thalidomide dexamethasone, the complete response rate was only 5%. But with triple therapy such as lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone, the complete response rate is now somewhere up to 30%. So these are patients when before I could tell them, look, you still have disease, the high-dose melphalan will get you into a complete remission, and we know that achievement of complete remission 
is the single most important factor that predicts long-term disease control, I think you should get high-dose melphalan. Mm-hmm. But in the patient who has a complete remission, I can't have that conversation. Now, mind you, I still think that for these patients, high-dose melphalan with autologous transplant remains the best way of achieving long-term disease control. Before the era of immune monitory drugs and protosome inhibitors, that means before thalidomide, lenalidomide, and bortezomib, you know, five randomized trials showed a benefit for high-dose melphalan consolidation. Currently today, the Palumbo trial is showing that patients who get high-dose melphalan have a longer remission duration than patients who do not. So I still think it should be considered the standard of care. The randomized DFCI-IFM trial will do a lot to um, inform us what the role is and what the magnitude of benefit is in getting high-dose therapy consolidation for all patients. The other very controversial aspect, and I think it's becoming less controversial as the data matures, is the use of maintenance lenalidomide on all patients who receive high-dose melphalan. Lenalidomide maintenance in two randomized trials, one conducted here in North America through the CLGB, showed that patients who were randomized to lenalidomide had longer progression-free survival, and it's showing a survival benefit. And again, had patients not agreed to participate in this randomized trial where the computer decided who was getting the maintenance or not, we would have never learned the magnitude of benefit of this intervention. And it would probably have not become available to all patients because insurances would not have approved of it. Because patients participated in this trial, it has now for many become the standard of care. Even for patients in complete remission, there may be a benefit for lenalidomide maintenance until the time of progression. Major change in standard of care, major change in prognosis for patients with myeloma. We're now talking about 60 to 70% of the myelomas after high-dose therapy and autologous transplant not having to deal with their disease for five years or more. We had never seen those data until recently. Lots of new investigational strategies. We're just looking at a new protocol at a new conditioning regimen with carfizumab melphalan. As you know, carfizumab is the new protosome inhibitor. It is not associated with neuropathy. It has effective, uh, it has anti-myeloma effect even in patients who have failed to respond to bortezomib. When combined with melphalan, we think it can make high-dose melphalan a better conditioning regimen. Uh, this is a phase one that is being done together with Dr. Luciano Costa at the Medical University of South Carolina. We are now <laughs> finished the phase one and getting ready to the phase two. Any questions, that, Jenny, do you think so far? Is that before, that trial is before a transplant? That, that is the regimen? conditioning regimen okay. for transplant. It is part of the transplant pr- process. It's the you know remember that in transplant we have two components: the high dose therapy, which in the autologous setting it is what it is the anti myeloma treatment, and then the stem cell product that's given back to rescue patients from the high dose therapy. And then there's the five phases that we talk about. The first phase is the chemotherapy phase. This is the high-dose treatment. The standard treatment across the country is melphalan 200. This is a new protocol combining carfizumab to melphalan 200. Uh, We are now in the phase two expansion cohort. We'll see what those results show. The second phase is the low count phase. This is the time when patients feel the worst, fatigue, some nausea. 
We're expending a lot of time looking at protocols to try to try to reduce the symptom burden after transplant. Dr. Landau and our institution just finished a study looking at maybe fractionating the stem cells to see if that will make the transplant recovery quicker. We're also starting to look at giving high doses of stem cells to try to make the recovery quicker and therefore reduce the burden of treatment. The third phase is early recovery. We currently, white counts will recover within nine to 10 days. And then it's early convalescence, which is the next couple of months in which patients' immune systems still remain weak. And what we're trying to do is seeing if we can enhance the recovery after transplant, we will reduce the symptom burden and actually reduce the interference. And hopefully we can make high-dose therapy and autologous transplant as easy as regular chemotherapy. Post-transplant, we're trying to do ways to prevent relapse. You've already heard of lenalidomide. We're now exploring um, two different vaccine strategies. We just finished a study with MAGE, uh, which is a uh, an antigen that myeloma uh, cells express. Um, one of the concerns we have is that we think that by just doing a vaccine against one antigen, we may not be covering all the different type of myeloma cells a patient may have. So Dr. David Chung is exploring a new way of developing vaccines with something called electroporation, where he can get the dendritic cells, the antigen-presenting cells, to express different antigens. So essentially, with one vaccine, you get various targets. And we hope that that will improve the efficacy of vaccine therapy for myeloma that unfortunately, until today, it has yet to be proven of any benefit, although a lot of people are studying it. Uh, Big program looking at donor transplants for myeloma, particularly for younger patients with high-risk disease. Dr. Gunter Kone is exploring this. With this process of T-cell depletion, which we take the um, T-cells out of the donor graft, we can virtually eliminate graft-versus-host disease, which was one of the most feared complications of donor transplant. Ongoing studies, preliminary results look very interesting. In the upfront setting, we only think about it for young patients with high-risk disease. But when people relapse after primary therapy, we think it is very um, appropriate to consider an allogeneic transplant because some of these patients can achieve long-term disease control. What do you hear from your readers, Jenny? Is there a lot of questions about role of maintenance and what's whether they should go on it or not? Oh, I think that's a very interesting question about should you be on maintenance? Because I know sometimes when you think about just a combination therapy approach there versus either versus a transplant approach or a combination with a transplant approach, there are, um, I guess, you know, symptomatic effects of being on those combinations. So a patient kind of thinks, do I really want to be on those for a long-term duration? And mm. I don't have any personal experience with lenalidomide. So I don't know if that's any different than the other, the and other what, drug. And do, you, and do you think what and your your the listeners? This is you're educating me. What do your listeners think about the issue of transplant? Do they feel that you know that it's all over the place, or what? What feel do you get when listeners call you and talk to you about what should I do about transplant or no transplant? Well, I think I think the people that I found that have gone through transplant and feel confident with that approach, still feel confident with that approach, mm. that that it's a, an aggressive approach. You know, there I, I think everybody gets pretty emotional sometimes when they, we start talking about this transplant approach versus combination therapies, and everybody has their own opinion about it. But 
Um, and I, we understand. I have to tell you, though. Yeah. And it's very, I mean, when I've been asked, I said, look, you know, I think there are some things which are facts that we all have to recognize. And fact number one is that, you know, the single most important surrogate for long-term disease control is a complete remission. So in patients who get primary therapy and have not achieved a complete remission, they should seriously, seriously consider proceeding to high-dose therapy and autologous transplant because it's their best way of achieving a complete remission. For patients who've achieved a complete remission and have low-risk disease, I mean, we're going to again con- um, encourage them to participate in all clinical trials, particularly the randomized trial of early versus late transplantation. That is the trial that will give us the information we need to be able to give patients clear guidance on what they should do. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, transplant's a choice. It's not a necessity. We do strongly encourage patients that their cells should be collected earlier rather than later. And that even though with Florexafor, which makes lex, uh, late collections more feasible, it's still better to collect the cells earlier rather than later. Just because the condi- the preconditioning is makes it more difficult. That's what I understood. Correct. And the quality of the stem cell is going to be a lot better if it's collected earlier rather than later. Okay. I think and- for most uh-huh. – yes, Jenny? No, and then you're deep – you have such deep exper- expertise in transplantation – and can you do you have any thoughts or ideas about percentages of the potential to cure the disease using the allogeneic transplant? I would say so you know to this and this is a a question full of um of emotions and mm-hmm. i I mean first, I've told patients, look, I don't think our goal should be to cure myeloma. Our goal should be to give patients the longest life with the best quality of life with the minimum treatment necessary. If with that we get patients to live long enough to die from something else, we've cured their disease. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, I mean, we to question Dr. Alt, are we curing myeloma in 2013? The answer is yes. There are patients who have now been in remission for more than 10 to 15 years and they've never had to deal with their disease again, and they've died from other causes when they're 70 or 80. So those patients were cured. Now, unfortunately, there are not very many of them. We think that number stands somewhere between 10 to 15%. Most of them received high-dose therapy. So, again, and, and, as, you know, because the road to cure goes through complete remission. And mm-hmm. since the most effective way to get a complete remission is high-dose therapy and autologous transplant, we think that that is definitively in the cards. Now, the donor transplant becomes a harder issue. But, again, if you look at patients who've had disease come back after primary therapy, after the initial therapy, the only ones who achieve long-term disease control, the majority of them have undergone a donor transplant. So even in patients with relapse disease in which most of us said, oh, this is uncurable, some of them, and, again, it's a small fraction, 10 to 15%, can achieve long-term disease control and, you know, go on and probably be cured of their disease um, uh, with a donor transplant in that context. Yeah, and if you can mitigate the graft-versus-host, which is one of the biggest issues, then so that's why we're very you reduce excited the risk. By, yeah, that's why we're very excited with Dr. Kone's program of T-cell depletion. He's also incorporated a WT1 uh, cytotoxic T lymphocytes in uh, uh, in the group of patients whose donors are brothers or sisters. 
So we're, I mean, we think that the, there there is a significant future there. It's, you know, again, the studies are just beginning. Uh, but we expect that there will be, that, you know, this is going to hopefully impact the natural course of the disease. And I don't, I think we also have to remember that, you know, there are other things coming down the road. So there's a national elotuzumab lenalidomide trial versus lenalidomide alone. And what, you know, Dr. Loniel and his colleagues at Emory have shown that the use of uh, elotuzumab in combination with lenalidomide makes lenalidomide a better drug. We are all extremely excited with the anti-CD38 monoclonal antibodies. So there's a Sanofi antibody and daratumumab, which is a Johnson & Johnson antibody. These antibodies have shown activity in patients who have failed all sorts of therapy, including transplants, including bortezomib, including lenalidomide, and combinations. So the fact that these drugs work in this situation means that we now have another potentially very powerful drug with very few side effects. So you can think about these antibodies will be combined with all standard therapies, and we're hoping that's going to make a significant difference in disease control. Um, we There's the new oral carfizumib that's being explored in clinical trials. There's the new oral bortezomib, uh, which is also being explored in clinical trials. Um, so... I think, you know, the reality is is that the next years to come will be a, a variety of new drugs, particularly new drugs with different mechanisms, that will hopefully continue to change the natural course of the disease the same way that, you know, bortezomib, lenalidomide, thalidomide, and high-dose melphalanin transplant has changed the natural course of the disease over the last 10 years. Right, and those you mentioned were considered to be immunotherapies, right? Elotuzumab exactly. and Duratum, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I have a question about a trial that you're running. It's called cabozantinib. I'm probably not saying that right. You're but saying it, impacts, it correctly. It, it impacts a specific gene, and this drug is already being used in lung cancer. So we talked and about this a little bit. And thyroid medullary cancer. Oh, Okay. So how did you make this connection to myeloma, and can we make these kind of connections in other circumstances? So it's interesting, yes. So the answer is how, why did we decide to explore cabosantinib in myeloma? So cabosantinib was also being developed here at Memorial for Prostate Cancer. So there was a um, um, an internal interest to look at it. Um, as discussed, uh, there was... Um, you know, the we do know that um, hepatite, hepatocyte growth factor and a MEC are um, are are two genes that seem to be overexpressed in the uh, context of myeloma. And uh, you know, this is um, um, interesting that cabozantinib is uh, can really inhibit. Um, the growth of tumors that depend on, um, you know, hepatocyte growth factor uh, receptor and MET. And so the hepatocyte growth factor and MET are the combinations. And um, there was uh, um, in vitro data that suggested that uh, cabosantinib could inhibit uh, myeloma cell lines. So, uh, you know, based on that and based on that, you know, there was other data that, you know, Hepatocyte growth factor concentrations correlated with Dury-Selman stage. Elevated HDF levels were associated with worse prognosis. 
you know, we did know that myeloma cells and cell lines do express HEF and have overexpression of MET. So we felt that this was a drug that was worthwhile exploring in advanced myeloma. And it was interesting that we already had a dose that was being uh, used for prostate cancer and for thyroid medullary carcinoma. It's associated with very acceptable side effects, primarily fatigue and gastrointestinal toxicity. And, you know, one of the things as you think about when we treat advanced relapse refractory myeloma, patients' marrow reserve or their blood counts aren't that great. And this is a drug that didn't affect blood counts very much. So we felt that it was a good candidate to explore for patients with advanced disease. We're just starting in the phase one, and although... The phase one doesn't require patients to have um, a MET overexpression or HDF overexpression. Um, eventually, we want to try to see if we can uh, enrich the study for those patients because we think those are the patients that are going to benefit the most based on the mechanism of action of the drug, obviously. Mm-hmm. So uh, we just started. We've, uh, you know, the couple, first couple of patients are on it, um, and we'll see. It's, uh, we are hopeful that our assumption that this will be an active agent in myeloma therapy is going to prove correct. Well, I just think it's a fascinating idea to take an existing drug and apply it to a different target. It, it would surely be faster than trying to develop a new drug. Correct. And I think when we are, you know, when as every new drug comes around and we have, there is a, um, you know, a BRAF uh, inhibitor that's uh, commercially available, and we're exploring that one in patients who have BRAF um, uh, mutated myeloma. Okay, well, I think it's great. So <laughs> target. So I think targeted I think, so, and, I, and again, I think as you know, as we um, hear from our listeners, you know, people always say, "Well, why do I want to participate in a clinical trial?" One is because it gives these patients access to new drugs that otherwise are not available, and two because. We are participating in developing the new treatments of tomorrow. I, that's why we're doing this series, is to give exposure to trials so people can understand them and better join them. So before when we talked, you were talking about national trials and the importance of running national trials. That, that'll be my last question, and then I think I'll open it up to caller questions. So I think when patients have asked me, so national trials are usually phase three trials, which or phase two trials looking at very rare disorders or very rare uh, entities. So the phase three trials are usually trials where the computer decides amongst two treatments, one which is considered the standard and the other one which is considered the investigation. If we as researchers knew which study was going to be better, we wouldn't be doing a trial in which the computer decides one treatment over the other. So the fact that we don't know is what makes us do this trial, which Although for many patients, and we understand the fact that the computer decides always is uncertain, is uh, unnerving, it's the only way to show that one treatment is better than another. Otherwise, it's there is a lot of uh, potential bias. And before these randomized trials were done, there are many instances in which we have been led astray by our perceptions of what treatment is better. And sometimes these treatment these trials are humbling because we you know usually investigational arm has been something that's touted by different investigators is much better than the standard, and when put head to head when there shows no difference, you know it's humbling, but 
at least we know for sure that that treatment is not better than the standard. On the contrary, you know, when lenalidomide maintenance is shown to be significantly better than no maintenance, when we go to government payers, when we go to third-party payers, when we go to, you know, the different uh, people who actually decide what treatment gets approved, this is irrefutable evidence. This is the gold standard. So this is really very difficult to say no to. So the fact that we had uh, more than 200 patients participating in the CLGB trial with the study that showed what it showed has allowed now all myeloma patients across the United States to have access to lenalidomide maintenance. The other large national phase two trials are diseases which are very rare. So you can think about you know high-risk smoldering myeloma, or as we talked about, myeloma patients with specific cytogenetic abnormalities. There may be not, there probably are not enough patients with deletion 17 in any institution, even Memorial or Dana Farber, or that we could do large trials in our own population of patients. So we have to, you know, unite forces and get together. And if we want to explore new drugs through the National Cancer Institute, the NHLBI, we have to do it together through a cooperative group mechanism. Mm-hmm. And I think. You know, the public also should be aware that the federal government has really been a champion of all these studies, and thanks to them, you know, myeloma care has improved significantly over the last decade. Yeah, well, thank you so much for what you're doing and for what others are doing to push this forward. So I I know you have to go, but I'd like to open it up for caller questions, just a couple. So if you have questions about Dr. Zeralt's research, you can call 347 Six three seven two six three one, and once you're on the call, you can press one on your keypad. So, okay, we have a caller at four eight five one five eight one that has a question. Go ahead with your question. Thank, oh, thank you for taking my call. Um, I had a question um, just on um, what was said about the target treatments um, for the subsets of myeloma, and um, really, my question is. How can we tell, or when can we tell we to look to like a standardized treatment program versus a specialized treatment program? Um, is there a way patients can know um, that maybe their particular um, they they need to look for something more specialized versus um, taking a standard path? Uh, so uh, our caller called in. How does the person decide? whether they should go on to a target a trial that has a quote unquote a targeted therapy versus a standard trial that has no targeted therapy. So I think right. as I've stated initially, as of today, there really is no frontline trial that is targeting specific chromosome or cytogenetic abnormalities. This is going to change in the next in the next year because there will be trials targeting specifically high risk myeloma. So if you're a patient with high-risk myeloma because you have an abnormal chromosome 17, you have plasma cell leukemia, you have very high-risk features, you have a 414 or a 1416 abnormality or an abnormality of chromosome 1, then, you know, there will be a trial specifically for you. And, you know, I think, Again, I, we cannot say that that trial is better or worse than the standard, but we do think that the results with standard therapy leave somewhat to be desired, that this is usually standard therapy plus some. It's either you get more intensification, you get a different maintenance, 
and that we strongly encourage patients to participate in that clinical trial. So in the context of high-risk leukemia, there will be a quote-unquote targeted therapy and regarding that we're targeting high-risk leukemia more than, more than we're targeting a specific target that they may have. But it's more intense treatment, and I strongly encourage patients to participate in that. Now, in regards to, like, our trial at Memorial, BRAF-mutated myeloma, we are really, at this moment in time, just um, recommending this for patients with advanced disease who have failed prior therapies partly because we want to get the signal that it actually works before we recommend it earlier in the course of the disease. Okay, thank you so much for your question and your your call. Okay, we have one more caller at 204-6956. Go ahead with your question. Okay, caller at 204-6956. Go ahead. Sorry about that. I had you on my mute. My question is, when it comes to clinical trials, who typically pays for that? Is that insurance, or is that part of the study itself? So that's an excellent question. The question was, when it comes to clinical trials, who pays for it? So the standard care of of clinical trials is paid by your insurance company or your third-party payer. The investigational part, the part that's not considered standard care, whether it be the new drug, whether it be the studies that are done because you're on the new drug, are paid by the study. So generally speaking, the medical care that's standard is paid by your third-party payer or should be paid by your third-party payer. And the investigational stuff, the drug, if it's not commercially available, is provided for free. And um, Or if it is commercially available and it's part of the study, it also should be provided for free. I did have a follow-up question about that. When it comes to needing to travel, for example, to some of those appointments, is that paid for by the patient or by the study itself? That is something that you patients need to discuss with the study staff and their care and their doctors because it's it changes different from one study to another. It's it is not each study will have different support for patients in regards to extra travel, and the extent of the support may be different. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you for that very important and interesting question. Yeah, that's a very important question. Well, Dr. Drell, we know you have to go, and I'm going to do this a little bit backwards. I'm going to give, I'm going to let you go and then give the introduction so people have a little background on you. Um, okay. But thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you for no. your great work and dedication to eliminating this disease. We, we're very grateful for you and all that you're doing. Jennifer, I want to thank you for what you're doing for this disease, for the amount of information that you're providing our patients, and for your support for clinical trials, which, as we both stated, is without doubt the the way to the cure for this disease. And I want to thank all the myeloma patients out there for their attention and their dedication and for the continued support of all the different myeloma activities that are currently being done across the country. Together, we will conquer this disease. Thank you all very much. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Now, thank you so I, I want to thank him for joining us, but I, I wanted to take a minute to introduce him to our listeners. Dr. Geralt is a fellow of the American College of Physicians. He's the chief of the Adult Bone Marrow Transplant Service and chief of the Myeloma Service at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Hematologic Oncology Group. 
He's also a professor of medicine at Cornell Medical College in New York. So he's originally from Venezuela. He received his medical degree from the Universidad Central de Venezuela in Caracas and completed his postgraduate internship at the University Hospital of Caracas with a residency at Good Samaritan Hospital in Ohio and a postdoctoral fellowship in hematology and oncology at MD Anderson. Dr. Dralt is a member of ASH, ASCO, the North American Society of Blood and Bone Marrow Transplantation, and the International Society of Hematology. He's on the International Bone Marrow Transplant Registry Executive Committee. He's the president-elect of the American Society for Blood and Marrow Transplantation. He's a steering committee member and past chair of the Blood and Marrow Transplant Clinical Trials Network and is on the National Marrow Donor Program Board of Directors. He's also on the, on the Clinical Advisory Board of the website Managing Myeloma, which is um, targeted at doctors but actually has really good information for patients. And he's also the past chair for the Center for International Blood and Marrow Transplant Research. Dr. Gerald has published over 400 articles and abstracts and has written chapters for several books and is an editorial board member for several journals. So thank you for listening to another episode of Innovation in Myeloma. Join us next week for our next M-Patient Radio interview as we learn more about how we can help drive to a cure for myeloma. 